this week on the Back Table Podcast. Here's the deal, right? If you just ask somebody what they want, they want something that's impossible, right? I want something with these super high returns and no risk. I want totally safe investments that I can never lose money on, but I want it to make 20% a year, right? I Everybody like that. wants I want that. I want that too. Right. And until you become financially literate, you don't realize that does not exist. I'm sorry. It just doesn't exist. And so you got to get into the details and learn a little bit. But just like you spent the first couple of years of medical school learning the language of medicine, there is a language of finance. You've got to learn at least enough to have a meaningful conversation or you're just going to be taken advantage of over and over and over again by financial professionals because they view doctors as whales to be harpooned. You have a target on your back by virtue of earning two or three or $400,000 a year. And so you got to realize that if you don't bother taking the time to learn a little bit of this stuff, you're going to be taken advantage of. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Back to Bill podcast. If you are a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or our website, which is www.backtable.com. Very easy to remember. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a written review, or reach out to us on social media. Just let us know how we can make this podcast a better resource for our medical community, and we're going to do our best to make that happen. Protect your most valuable asset, the skill and ability to practice your medical specialty. One out of three individuals become disabled during their career. Be prepared by establishing a specialty-specific disability insurance policy from the experts at DI4MDs. They represent all the major disability insurance companies that provide individual policies for physicians. Special discounts are available for all physicians, residents, and the military. Whether you have no coverage, or to compare and improve your current coverage, or take advantage of the new higher monthly benefit, contact them today at www.di4mds.com. Again, that's www.di4mds.com, or call them at 888-934-4637. Again, that's 888-934-4637. All right, guys, I'm excited to introduce our guest today. We have Dr. Jim Dolly, or better known as the White Coat Investor. If you don't know Jim, then Google him. Just Google White Coat Investor. He's a big deal. Jim was born and raised in Alaska. He is a practicing ER doc. Are you still practicing? Yes, I've got a shift in a few hours. Okay, all right, good. Well, so we won't been, be that I've long. I've been working all weekend. We're recording this over uh, you know, MLK weekend, so I've, I've had five shifts in the last six days. Dear God. All right, all right. So uh, we won't keep you too long. Jim is also the founder of the White Coat Investor. Uh, White Coat Investor is, it's like an empire at this point. It's got a lot of different facets. Um, you guys have a blog, newsletter, forum, a uh, couple books, and live conferences. Did I miss anything, Jim? Well, there's actually a whole lot more than that. Uh, you know, between the podcast, video cast, we've got three different communities, one on Reddit, one on Facebook, and then the one on our website, and a whole bunch of online courses as well. So basically, we try to package up this financial literacy information for docs into whatever form they prefer. That's right. And actually, you know, just talking from personal experience, I love the blog, but I really love the podcast. I think you guys are doing a super good job with those podcasts. I don't know if like they're fun for you to make, but I love listening. Yeah. Cindy is our staff member in charge of the podcast. When I started that four or five years ago, I told her, I'm going to talk into the microphone. You're going to do everything else. (laughs) And uh, and she's done a fantastic job, but I, there's no way I could have handled doing everything on the podcast the way I, I started the blog. Yeah, for sure. All right. So 
let's jump into it. And one of the things I just wanted to get out of the way, guys, is this is just a little disclaimer. This is a podcast. We're going to be talking about financial, um, personal finance and financial literacy. So consider this like a conversation between a few docs in the lounge where like you're involved, but not actively involved. You're just listening, actually. <laughs> but personal finance is personal. And today we're going to be covering some material in broad strokes. And hopefully we'll spark an interest for a few of you, which will cause you guys to dig a little bit deeper. And with that out of the way, Jim, why does everyone need to fire their financial advisor and read your blog? <laughs> well, while I'd love for everybody to read my blog, I'm not sure everybody has to. I mean, let's be honest, probably 80% of docs want and need a financial advisor. That doesn't mean that they won't get great benefit from becoming financially literate themselves. Uh, but let's be honest, there's lots of do-it-yourselfers. And if you learn how to do this well, you absolutely can do it yourself. But you shouldn't feel like you have to. If you have zero interest in finance, you probably should not be your own financial advisor. You probably should hire somebody to assist you with that. But it's still helpful to learn a little bit about it. For sure. And actually, I'll just speak a little bit to my uh, personal experience. I remember when I found your blog, I, I was very much like just like you uh, or just like you just said in that like I'm not that interested in personal finance. But by the time I figured out enough about personal finance, I was like, well, I think I am going to fire my financial advisor <laughs> and became a DIYer. Um, so, you know, for those of you listening, like it's possibility, but I think it behooves every physician out there to take some interest in your personal finance. I think it's going to serve you well. So, Jim, let's talk about uh, saving versus investing. Like there's always like a lot of talk and a lot about hype about like investing. Where do I need to put my money? But can you talk a little bit about like how important it is to like just save, just putting money away, why that's important? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um you know, you can't invest anything if you don't save it first. So saving has to come first. And what is saving? Well, it's simply earning more than you spend. You know, you can think of it that way, or you can think of it as spending less than you make, whichever way you want to think about it. That's all savings is. Investing is taking that money and basically making a choice that I would rather spend more later than less now. And that's what investing is. You're trying to make your money grow. You want it to keep up and hopefully exceed inflation. No small feat these days. Mm -hmm. um, but that's all investing is, is, you know, in some ways it's the backup plan. If you can't do what you're doing and love what you're doing until you're 90 years old and keel over, you're going to need some money to live on when you're done doing whatever it is you do to earn money right now. And that's the main point of investing is building that nest egg so that someday your money can support you the way you're currently supporting you. And I see it all the time in your blog, and, and it's kind of echoed um, throughout a lot of the podcasts, is that um, you always say live like a resident, especially like your first years as an attending or your first couple of years after fellowship or residency. Can you kind of speak a little bit about that? Like, why why do you have to live like a resident? Like, what's like, well, you know, I'm ready to like, I'm ready to buy a BMW, dude. I'm ready to get a nice house. <laughs> like, don't tell me I got to live like a resident. What's the deal? Well, here's the truth about the vast majority of doctors. Now, some doctors get an entrepreneurial streak. They start a company, you know, they, they figure something out that's going to make them money outside of medicine. But most doctors, their greatest wealth building tool is their income, their ability to trade their time for money at a very high rate. And uh, the truth is for most docs, unless they make partner or build a particularly profitable practice, you know, they basically have kind of a flat earnings curve, maybe even a down sloping one throughout their career because they just don't want to take as much call when they're 55 as they did when they were 35. And so you've got to be careful not to grow right into your income as soon as you get out of your training. And uh, it's such a powerful tool because you're used to living like a resident. You're used to living off fifty or $60,000 a year. 
And as you come out of training, all of a sudden, now you're making $200,000, dollars $400,000. And there's a big gap between $400,000 and $60,000. If you can just keep living something similar to what you were doing as a resident, all of a sudden, now you've got $250,000 a year that you can use to build wealth. You know, your student loans, as big as they are, are not going to last very long when you throw $250,000 a year at them. I love some of the things that you've talked about, uh, student loans. What's some advice you have about student loan payback, consolidation, or, I mean, what about like physician forgiveness loan? Well, there, there are certainly lots of great ways to get rid of your student loans. There's two main ways, though. The first one is when you come out of training, you refinance your loans to as low of a rate as you can, and you get busy paying them off while you're living like a resident. You send 5000 10000 maybe even $15,000 a month to the lender, and pretty soon the loans are gone. Most people, if they will do that, if they'll live like a resident, but the rest toward their student loans, they'll be out of debt in two or three years. And that's just the way it works out. Uh, you know, if you run the math, that's how it works out. However, if you are working for a government employer or a 501c3, a nonprofit, there is an even better option called public service loan forgiveness. And what this program requires is it requires that you have federal loans. This doesn't work for private loans. And it requires that you work full-time for a nonprofit. But if you will do that and you will make 120 monthly payments, 10 years worth of payments, whatever you owe at the end of that is forgiven, tax-free. And so a lot of people were skeptical about this for many years. It's not going to work out, et cetera, et cetera. Well, now, just starting the last year or two, you're starting to see all kinds of doctors receive public service loan forgiveness. It really does work. It, it works very, very well, particularly if you spent a long time in training and if you want to be an academic doctor. Imagine you spent three years in residency, three years in fellowship, and then stayed on as faculty at your program for another four years. That's all it takes to get all of your student loans forgiven. And so that's a, that's a pretty good benefit. And uh, if you qualify, you really ought to go for it. But the key is don't put your loans in deferral or forbearance during residency and, and fellowship. All those little tiny payments count toward your 10 years of payments. That's right. And actually, uh, if I'm not mistaken, a lot of those uh, right now, aren't we in some kind of like a delayed period where you don't even have to be making payments on your loans, but it still counts towards your loan payment? Yeah, the last two years, we've had basically a student loan holiday. It was started by President mm -hmm. Trump and then extended by Congress, and then it's been extended by President Biden a couple of times. Basically, by the time all is said and done, people with federal student loans will not have made any payments and have had no interest accrue for over two years. Right now, this holiday is scheduled to end at the end of April 2022. But who knows? I didn't think they'd extend it this far. Maybe they'll extend it further, especially in an election year. But, you know, all of those non-payments actually count toward your 120 monthly payments of public service loan forgiveness. There are actually doctors now who will have never made a payment as an attending and will get public service loan forgiveness because they spent so long in training and then ran right into the student loan holiday. Yeah, it's crazy. So let me ask you this. Like, how do you keep up with all this stuff? Like, I mean, do you... Is, is it you just make it your beeswax to like stay up to date on all this stuff? Or like, do you have like a team of people that kind of help you? Like, because I hear you answering questions on the podcast all the time. Like, how do you always know the answers? You just look <laughs> it up right before the podcast? Well, let's be honest. Docs all have the same 50 or 100 <laughs> questions, right? I'm not answering new questions most of the time. Most of the time, sure, this sure, is a sure. question I've answered a dozen times, you know? Yeah. Um, but uh, I just kind of got into it, you know? And I was halfway through residency. I'd been ripped off a half dozen times by various financial professionals. 
And I realized if I don't learn this stuff, I'm just going to be taken advantage of over and over and over again. So I lived across the street from this used bookstore in residency called Bookman's in Tucson. Some of you have probably seen it. And I went over there and I started grabbing all the finance books. You know, they're two or three bucks a piece because it was a used bookstore. And I read them. I read a whole bunch of terrible finance books, but I read a few good ones. And after a while, I realized the good ones are all saying the same thing. And so I, it just became kind of a hobby for me. I, I found it just as interesting as I found medicine. And, um, you know, and then, of course, since I started the White Coat Investor in 2011, you know, it started out as a side gig that didn't make any money. But now, you know, we got 15 people working for us now, you know. And so this is, this is you know, part of my job, part of my profession now. Part of what I do is staying up on this stuff. And, and, uh, and it's a huge service to the medical community and other high-income professionals. So, I, you know, it's, it's a passion project for sure, even though it actually does make money now. It didn't for the first few years. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. All right. So uh, another question. I'm at a fellowship. Um, I'm making good money. I know that I don't want to blow it all, but I don't know what to do with it. Like, I don't know. Uh, do I need to put in my 401k? Do I need to beat down my student loans? One of the chapters in your book that I really, really liked was it basically just kind of a breakdown of like, hey, man, if you don't know what to do with your money, try these things in this order. Can you kind of like go over those briefly? Sure. Although I'll be honest, every time I make a list like that, it's slightly different. But, sure, uh, sure, 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 sure. But the truth is a typical attending doc has more good things to do with their money than they have money, right? Think about all the stuff you need cash for when you come out of training. You're probably moving to a new job. You know, that takes some cash. Maybe you're buying a house. You need the closing costs, maybe a down payment. You know, you maybe you want to do a Roth conversion on any retirement accounts you had during training, you know, while you're still in a relatively low income year. Maybe you need to beef up your emergency fund. Maybe you've been carrying around some credit card debt or you have an auto loan. You've certainly got student loans uh, if you're one of, you know, about three quarters of, of doctors out there. Um, and of course, you want to start saving for retirement. You want to max out your retirement accounts. Maybe you've already got kids and you want to be doing 529s. There's all these great things you can do with your money. And the truth is you can't do them all. You don't have enough money. And so you've got to prioritize them in some way. So, you know, the general big priorities you ought to have, at this point, you ought to have some sort of emergency fund. You know, doctors do run into emergencies. And when you lose your job as a doc, it might take you six months to get a new one. So it's a good idea to have a few months of savings just sitting in cash in a savings account that you can use for that. Another really great use of your money early on is paying off high interest debt. You know, if you've got some 15% credit card that you use to pay for your residency interviews or that you use to uh, live on between medical school and when you started residency and you haven't paid it off, you know, I mean, that's a priority use of your money. If I could find a 15% guaranteed return from any investment, that's the first thing I'd put money toward. Okay. You also want to start looking at, uh, you know, your student loans. You need some sort of student loan plan. If you're not going for public service loan forgiveness, map it out. How much are you going to put toward them for how many years and have these things paid off? You don't want to have these things around when you're 55. You know, you, you, student loans are not a pet that you have to keep down in the basement, right? These are things you get rid of early in your career so you have a little bit more financial freedom. So make sure you have a plan for that. I'm not saying every dollar you have has to go towards student loans, but I think most docs want to be done with student loans within about five years of coming out of training. So that's a big priority. If you've got uh, a match, for your 401k at this new job, then you want to uh, make sure you're getting that match. Not getting that is like leaving your salary on the table. So, uh, I mean, so you can make a list of these priorities and they're a little bit different for everyone, but you're probably going to have near the top emergency fund, high interest debt, getting the match out of your 401k, 
saving and tax advantaged accounts like 401ks and Roth IRAs. And, you know, as you work your way down the list, you might have your 2% car loan down toward the bottom, um, but it's probably still on the list. And so I encourage everyone to make their own list and actually have a written financial plan for their first 12 paychecks when they come out of training. And if you'll do that, you'd be surprised how quickly you can build wealth, how quickly you can get out of debt, and how quickly you can find the financial freedom that allows you to have the career you want and also the personal life you want. Can you speak a little bit about uh, the power of just like writing down a financial plan? Like um, like people say it, but then like in the end, it, like I remember when I was reading through it, I was like, oh, I got to write it down. That seems like such a plan, uh, such a pain. Like I got it in my head. Like it's all right up here between the ears. But can you kind of speak to why like it is helpful to actually write down your financial plan? Well, think about it like when you do an H&P, right? You're admitting someone to the hospital and you're sitting there writing the H&P. And you go through it and you're like, oh, that sounds stupid. That's a dumb plan. Oh, yeah, I forgot <laughs> this. Of course, I've got to address the urinary tract infection too or whatever it is, right? And so I think there's great benefit to writing it down initially. But there's even more benefit as you go along. Like I had an email this morning from somebody who said, you know, I realized this tech fund I'd invested in, this Fidelity tech fund has not been doing well the last few months. And, and I just want to change my, you know, change my investments. What should I do? That, that was the email. What should I do? And, <laughs> and so like, you, you obviously told him what tech fund to get oh in, yeah. I hope. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, that's your entire email. Well, what you need is a plan. You need a written plan of what you're going to invest in and how much money you're going to put in there and what accounts you're going to use and what mix of investments you're going to use. You know, that you're, this asset allocation, how much in stocks and bonds and real estate. You need this written plan. And then when something's not doing well, you can go back and look at your plan and look at why did I put this in my plan to start with? What was the point of that? And, uh, and it'll help you to stay the course, which is particularly important in a big, nasty bear market where you've lost 40% of your assets. You know, that's the time you really need to remember what's my plan? Why am I doing it this way? Uh, what can I do to avoid selling low, you know, panic selling in the bottom of this bear market? So yeah, I think a written plan is really important. And uh, I have yet to have someone that made a written plan that regretted it. You know, I'll just, I'll echo that sentiment. It, I, I thought it was a little hokey. I went ahead and did the written plan and have never regretted it. And and actually in, in times when like you're feeling a little morally weak or queasy about some of your decisions, I think it's nice to be able to go back to your plan when you were of sound mind and say, you know, when I wrote this down, this was a smart idea then, let's stay the course. And it's not written in stone, right? It's written on you know, your computer. So, you know, sometimes if you have to adjust, that's fine. But I, I just don't think you want to be adjusting like uh, when you're in the middle of like, you know, a big Corona uh, pandemic and things are tanking 20 or 30%. Um, that's not the time to like reinvest everything and rethink the plan. Totally agree. In fact, the last line on our financial plan is that any changes require a three month waiting period. So we can't wow. change our asset allocation or investments without at least thinking about it for three months. And that helps keep you from panic selling and doing something stupid in the moment. Okay, I like that. So one of the things I wanted to talk about, and it's a little niche, but I feel like it comes up a lot on the podcast and um, common question is the backdoor Roth. I didn't know if we'd have to cut it for 2022, but it looks like it lives on. Um, can you talk a little bit about the backdoor Roth and uh, why it's a smart thing to do for most physicians? Sure. Before I answer that, how long until this goes live? <laughs> I know, I know. No, I think we can get it live. I think we can get it live uh, before February. All right, fair enough. So we're recording this on January 17th. Anytime I talk about this, I always put the date in because it was it was back and forth last fall in Congress. They were trying to, in the Build Back Better bill that didn't end up passing because of Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin being against it, uh, aside from 
you know, 50 Republicans, was this provision to eliminate the ability to do Roth conversions of after-tax money. And that would eliminate two things that doctors often use. One's called the backdoor Roth IRA, and the other one is a mega backdoor Roth IRA that you do with a 401k. But the backdoor Roth IRA, at its most basic, is simply a way for doctors and other high-income professionals to continue to put money into a Roth IRA even once their income is too high to directly put the money into the Roth IRA. So instead of contributing directly to a Roth IRA because they make too much, they put money into a traditional IRA, a tax-deferred IRA. But because they make too much to, to take a tax deduction for that, it's after-tax money that goes into the traditional IRA. Then the next day, they move it over to a Roth IRA. And because it was after-tax money before, there's no cost to convert it to a Roth IRA. And so in the end, it's just like you had directly contributed to a Roth IRA. You're just going through the back door, if you will. And this isn't illegal. Congress has blessed this and the IRS has blessed this. Uh, and as of January 17th, 2022, <laughs> it is still legal. Um, but if Build Back Better passes in its current form, which I'm pretty skeptical it will, uh, this may go away at some point in the future. Sure. But the nice thing about it is it gives you some you know, tax-free money to use in retirement. And so you'll have a mix of tax-free money in Roth accounts, as well as tax-deferred money in, uh, in traditional or tax-deferred accounts. So what do you say to some of the uh, listeners out there who are like, you know what, backdoor Roth, Roth, traditional 401k, 401k, all this stuff, like, you know, it, it all makes their heads hurt. Like, what do, like, why does this stuff matter? Like where I put it, I just want to put it where somewhere where it's safe. Like, what's the impetus between like, why do we have to learn the difference between a Roth IRA and a traditional IRA and a solo 401k? Well, I mean, here's the deal, right? If you just ask somebody what they want, they want something that's impossible, right? I want something with these super high returns and no risk. I want totally safe investments that I can never lose money on, but I want it to make 20% a year, right? I Everybody like that. wants I want that. I want that too. Right. And until you become financially literate, you don't realize that does not exist. I'm sorry. It just doesn't exist. And so you got to get into the details and learn a little bit. But just like you spent the first couple of years of medical school learning the language of medicine, there is a language of finance. And if you don't know what the word anterior means and you don't know what, uh, you know, uh, the word hepatosplenol or hepatorenal or whatever means, you can't even talk to somebody in the field. You can't even begin to understand until you understand the vocabulary. So you've got to learn at least enough to have a meaningful conversation or you're just going to be taken advantage of over and over and over again by financial professionals because they view doctors as whales to be harpooned. You have a target on your back by virtue of earning two or three or $400,000 a year. They want your money. They want to manage it and take fees from it and put you into lousy investments or whatever. And so you got to realize that if you don't bother taking the time to learn a little bit of this stuff, you're going to be taken advantage of. And yes, you're going to have to learn what a Roth IRA is and what a solo 401k is and what a marginal tax rate is. And, uh, and there's no way around it. The sooner in your career you learn this stuff, the better off you're going to be. So I recommend you start learning about it, you know, at a minimum as soon as you're leaving training, um, but maybe even a little bit during training. I noticed also uh, from the podcast that uh, you started giving out some the White Coat Investor uh, book to incoming medical students around the country. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So we started uh, about a year ago. I published a book called The White Coat Investor's Guide for Students, and it's designed specifically for medical and dental students. And we like them so much that we are giving the book away free to all first and second, or all first year medical and dental students in the country. 
And we did it last year. We're doing it again this year. The only requirement is someone in your class has to volunteer to pass them out. We call that person the WCI <laughs> champion. And if someone in their class will volunteer to pass them out, we will not only send them a book for everybody in the class, but we'll send them a t-shirt. And if they send us a picture of the class holding the book, we'll even send them a tumbler. You know, I mean, the, how easy can it be? All you got to do is take the books, put it in their box in the student lounge, right? It's not that complicated. Uh, yeah. But you'd be surprised. We haven't been able to give them all away. So, uh, you know, what's amazing is last year we gave it away to, I think, about uh, two-thirds of the first-year medical and dental students in, this in the country. And uh, we've been doing it now for the last three months for this year's class. And I think we've only reached about a third of the students in the country. So if you know somebody that's a first-year medical or dental student, have them contact us, sign up to be the WCI champion, and, and we'll send them enough books for everybody in their class. That's right. Public service announcement. These books are going, I mean, they're going out free. All you got to do is just email the White Coat Investor Complex and they'll get them to you. I hope LSU, I hope LSU New Orleans at LSU Shreveport are on the list. I don't know. Megan, one of our staff members, handles that. I'm not sure if they're on the list or not. It wouldn't surprise me if they weren't, though. I'll, uh, you know what? I'll, how about this? I'll do this for uh, Megan. I'll email her and I'll give all the books out to LSU New Orleans, Tulane, and Oshner. So <laughs> three, three medical schools in one city. I'll hit them up and I'll get a tumbler. <laughs> well, it's technically got to be someone in the class passing oh. them, So, But if you can <laughs> okay. find a volunteer, that would go a long way. Okay. All right. All right. I'll get somebody a Tumblr. All right. So um, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about is kind of a different retirement vehicle, maybe a little nuanced, but something about a health savings account. Like that seems like a pretty cool deal. And I've read some things about like it being a, a tat or uh, a savings vehicle. Can you kind of talk to the, to the health savings account? Like what is that and why that might be a, a good reason to put some money into? Yeah, these are super cool. This is my favorite investing account, the first one I fund every year. And the reason why is it gets better tax treatment than anything else out there. It's better than your Roth IRA. It's better than your 401k. It's better than everything. Now, when people think about a health savings account, they think about, oh, you just use that to pay your healthcare expenses. And that's true. But what it really is, is a stealth IRA. It's like another retirement account. Here's the way it works. You can put, if you have a family, which is you're either married or you have one kid, you can put $7,300 into it in 2022 if your only insurance plan is a high deductible health plan, right? You have to have a high deductible to be eligible to use an HSA. But assuming you have a high deductible health plan, you can fund an HSA. And uh, if your family is $7,300 this year, if you're single, it's, uh, it's half that. But that gives you a tax break. You get a tax break up front. That is now $7,300 you do not pay taxes on this year, which is great. And then that money doesn't have to just sit there in some piddly dunk savings account making nothing. You can invest it in mutual funds, just like you would your 401k. And as it grows, it grows in a tax-protected way, just like your 401k or your Roth IRA. And then whenever you take money out, so long as you use it on approved healthcare expenses, it comes out tax-free. So tax break going in, tax-protected growth, comes out tax-free. It's triple tax-free. It's better than your 401k. It's better than your Roth IRA. And so that's a pretty awesome thing about it. But you can use that for healthcare expenses now. You can use it for healthcare expenses in retirement. Obviously, the longer it stays in the account, the more it'll grow. And um, it's really a pretty awesome account. There's, there's another thing you can do with it too. If you, for whatever reason, have a ton of money in there, and I, I may be in this category. I looked at my HSA the other day that I've been funding for the last 11 years. I've wow. got $160,000 in my HSA. And I may or may not spend all that on healthcare expenses, but starting at age 65, you can take that money out and use it for whatever you want without paying any penalties. 
Now you have to pay taxes on it if you use it for a sailboat, but you don't have to pay any penalties. So at its very worst, it's like your 401k, you know, no taxes due until you take the money out of the account at the end of your career. But there's even another cool trick. You don't actually have to take the money out of the account the same year you spend it on healthcare. For example, let's say you have an appendectomy this year and you get some $5,000 bill, whatever. You can keep that receipt for $5,000 and you can wait until you're 70, pull the money out, have that receipt to show the IRS if they ask you about it, and then the money comes out tax-free. So some people do this. They keep you know this file with all their healthcare expenses and at any given time, they could pull out twenty dollars or $30,000 out of their HSA, totally tax and penalty-free to use for whatever they want. And then that can function even as their emergency fund if you want. So there's a lot of cool tricks you can do with the HSA. Don't mistake it for an FSA, a flexible savings account. That's the one that you have to, it's use-lose at the end of the year. Yeah, if you don't use spend it, it on it. everything, it's gone. But an HSA rolls over year to year, it can be invested, and it gets all kinds of great tax benefits. You heard it here, not first, but you've heard it here, audience. <laughs> the White Coat Investor's favorite investment vehicle, the HSA. Okay. So we talk a lot, I mean, you kind of mentioned it. Uh, we talk all the time about taxes, like the Roth IRA is like, because we're worried about taxes or the HSA is a good place to put your money because of taxes. Like why do we, as physicians or really as anybody, why do we spend so much time talking about taxes? Who cares? Maybe I'll just pay the taxes and then put my money away, right? That's easier. Well, basically the effect of taxes on your investments is that it causes them to grow slower. So your money doesn't grow as fast. It takes more years to get to whatever your financial goals are, et cetera. That, that, that's the whole point of reducing taxes. Be careful not to let the tax tail wag the investment dog, though, right? Yeah, so uh, what, if, what does that mean, though? But like, it, uh, Especially in the 80s, for instance, there were all these investments that were out there. And because tax rates were so high, the point of these investments was simply to lose money. You know, And you got this big, huge tax break because you lost money. But at the end of the day, the goal is not to pay the least amount in taxes. The goal is to have the most money left over after you pay taxes. And so be careful not to get too fixated on reducing your tax bill that, that you're making dumb financial decisions. Um, but usually, you know, reducing your costs, reducing your investment expenses, reducing your taxes, that's usually a good thing for you as far as reaching your financial goals. Yeah. And so things like uh, a 401k or a raw or a backdoor Roth and an HSA, those are all like kind of mechanisms to reduce your overall, like what goes to the tax man and what you keep in your pocket. Exactly. Yeah. So quick question, who does, uh, who does your taxes? Like, do you do, are you doing your own taxes? You know, I did my own taxes for many, many years. Um, the nice thing about doing it yourself is nobody cares as much about it as you do. And so it, uh, you know, you, you, not only do you, are you not going to hose yourself, <laughs> you are actually going to learn as you go along. And every year, maybe I had to learn one new form. And um, so as my taxes got more and more complicated as my life went on, um, you know, I had to learn more and more about taxes as I went. But, you know, a typical employed doctor, your taxes are really simple. You answer <laughs> a few questions in TurboTax and you send it in. There's nothing to it. It's really easy. And so don't be afraid to do your own taxes. If you start in residency, you might be surprised. You may never actually pay someone to do your taxes. But the last couple of years, as the white coat investor has gotten bigger and more complex, you know, one of my, one of my, my COO actually convinced me, you know what, you shouldn't really be doing the company taxes anymore. <laughs> and he's probably right. So we hired somebody to do the company taxes. And, uh, and that's great because I didn't have to do it anymore. And, uh, and the accountant did a really, really good job on it. And so this last year, I actually had the accountant do my personal taxes too, which, which are a big mess. I have a fair number of real estate investments in various states and it's a mess. I mean, I had to file in nine states last year. 
And uh, what was pretty funny about it, though, is that the accountant screwed up the backdoor Roth IRA on my taxes. <laughs> and it was worse because I pointed it out. They sent me a review copy before they filed them and said, this is wrong. Make sure you fix this. And said, OK, we'll get a fix. No problem. And then they were filed wrong. And so now the accountant not only gave me a discount on the taxes, but is now having to refile them and and correct that, which it's pretty funny. Here I am teaching people all over the country (laughs) how to fill out your tax paperwork for uh, the backdoor Roth IRA. And my own accountant got it wrong. So such is is life. Yeah. Send him a link to your blog post. All right. Taking the left turn a little bit. um, And one of the, this is a podcast that I really, really liked. It was uh, episode 13, April 2017. And it was about variable versus fixed rate mortgage. I thought this was such a cool idea. I it I totally missed it by maybe one year. Like I bought my house um, just one year before that podcast came out. But can you talk about like variable versus fixed rate mortgage? Because I even brought this up to a, a guy in my practice. He's like, that sounds like a very, very risky move, Chris. He's like, I would never do that. And I thought, okay. Well, let's talk about variable and fixed rate debt to start with, right? Because this doesn't just apply to mortgages. It also applies to student loans. Fair. When you refinance your student loans, you can refinance into a variable rate student loan or you can refinance into a fixed rate student loan. But the best way to think about this is that uh, think of the variable rate as the standard and think of the fixed rate as paying somebody else an insurance premium to run the interest rate risk for you, okay? So if you go out and you uh, refinance your student loans into a five-year fixed rate plan, maybe you do that, maybe it's 4%, or you can get a variable rate loan, and maybe it's 2.8%. You know, that might be typical. And so you, by virtue of of running the interest rate risk yourself, you get a discount of 1.2%. And so if rates go up in the short term, you know, they go up very quickly right after you get the loan, you might come out behind because rates went up and you ended up paying more in interest in the long run. But most of the time, rates either don't go anywhere or they go down or they go up slowly. And in each of those situations, you actually come out ahead with a variable rate loan. There are doctors out there with variable rate student loans who are now paying like 0.1% on their student loans (laughs) because, you know, rates don't just go up. They also go down sometimes. And so you can really come out ahead with a variable rate loan. But are you taking on risk? Yes, you're taking on the interest rate risk yourself. And when you get a fixed rate loan, whether it's student loans or whether it's a mortgage, you're paying somebody else to take that. So if you get a 30-year mortgage at 4% fixed, you know, and rates go to 8%, bank gets hosed. They made a bad bet, you know, and you come out ahead. But if you get a 30-year fixed mortgage at 4% and rates fall to 3%, the bank's coming out ahead, right? They're getting 4% when they could really only get 3% anywhere else. And so you don't always come out ahead with that. So if you want to run a variable rate loan, you ought to see what the worst case scenario is. Say rates go up dramatically early in the loan. How far are you going to come out behind? Can you really afford the higher payments? And if you can, maybe you can afford to run that rate, that interest rate risk yourself. It's like anything else with insurance. Um, You know, if you can afford the bad things happening to you without buying insurance and you don't need to buy the insurance. But you know, when you get out there to 10, 15, 20, 30 year loans, you know, maybe it's worth, you know, paying somebody else to run that risk for you. But on a five-year student loan that you're planning to pay off in three years, no, man, you can run that risk yourself. Same thing if you're going to be in a house for just like five years, right? Nothing wrong with getting what they call a 7-1 variable rate loan. 
It's basically fixed for seven years and then it goes variable. Well, if you're only going to be there for five, it's a fixed loan for you, you know, and maybe yeah. you got a lower rate than you would if you'd gotten a 30 year fixed by getting that seven one arm is what they call it, adjustable rate mortgage. So just be smart about how you think about it. Understand the consequences either way. The thing that like, kind of spoke to me about this was like how many ways it could go right for you. I think everyone automatically, when you think about like uh, an adjustable rate mortgage or, uh, you know, a variable uh, rate mortgage is that you always think about, oh, what if it goes up? What if it goes from like, you know, we're, I don't know, 3%, what if it goes to 20%? But like it, like you said, most of the time, like, you know, it's like small incremental, like maybe it goes up, but then maybe it also drops back down. I mean, there's a lot of different ways it can work out for you. Yeah, that's exactly right. You, you just never know what's going to happen. So you got to look at the worst case scenario. And most of the time there's some sort of a cap, like it can only go up so right. much per year and it can only go up so much total. And so look at the worst case scenario. Can you afford that? Well, maybe you don't have to pay someone else to, to insure against that risk. Yeah. And I thought that was such a neat way of framing it is that like really what you're doing, like with the fixed rate mortgage is like you're, you're capping your downside. It's like an insurance play. And so you're, you're paying a premium for that, for basically a less risky mortgage. That's exactly right. One of the things that um, you talk about a lot on the blog and comes up on the podcast is disability insurance. And I have to admit, like this was a, this was a blind spot for me. And I'll just say that, you know, it, it seems complicated. I'm worried about, you know, not getting the right insurance, but like really going back to it, like, do I even need it? I mean, maybe I can just like, I've always been healthy. Why would I need disability insurance? I'm playing devil's advocate, obviously. Yeah. Well, it turns out that you're far more likely to become disabled than you are to die. And thus disability insurance costs a lot more than life insurance. You know, if you go buy a 30 year term life policy, you get a million dollar policy for five or $600 a year. You know, if you're a young, healthy resident, but disability insurance costs some money. You know, you generally pay somewhere between two and 6% of the amount of income you're protecting. So if the benefit for you, if you got disabled is $10,000 a month, you're going to be paying two to $600 a month to protect that. So it's not cheap. And the reason it's not cheap is because doctors use it all the time. <laughs> uh, I mean, think about how much time and money and effort you have invested in you, in your specialized knowledge, your specialized skills, you know, whatever specialty you might be in. Now imagine that you cut off your thumb. And all of a sudden, you can't do what you just spent the last 10 or 15 years learning how to do. Doesn't that seem like something really valuable, something worth insuring? And that's what disability insurance does. It insures your ability to make a living, you know, whether that's from an illness or whether that's from trauma or, or whatever it might be. Um, and so I do recommend any doctor who's not already financially independent that they own a, a disability insurance policy and own occupation disability insurance policy. And, um, and really the time to buy that is right when you come out of school, you know, as an intern is when you ought to be buying this thing, not only because it's cheapest then, but also you're least likely to have any medical problems. They're going to keep you from getting it at that point. So can you talk a little bit about like, what is like an own occupation? Because like, so we have a lot of, like, I think about our audience, like a lot of urology, a lot of ENT, a lot of interventional uh, radiology or people in like the vascular and endovascular space. So like a lot of like proceduralists, but like, there's a lot of room, like, Say I lost my thumbs, God forbid, I could still practice as a radiologist, but what does own occupation or own onc kind of like mean? Like how is that different from just other disability insurance? Yeah. I mean, especially in the procedural specialties, you know, own occupation, specialty specific coverage is what you're looking for. If you are an ENT and you are practicing as an ENT when you become disabled and you can no longer operate, you want that thing to pay out. 
pay out the whole benefit. Maybe you bought $15,000 a month of benefit. You want to be getting $15,000 a month, even if you can go to the medical school and give some lectures, even if maybe you can still go to clinic and talk to people, even if you can write books or something. You want that thing to pay. Because if you look at something like social security disability, the way it works is if you can work at anything, mm-hmm. it doesn't pay. You know, if you can, you know, be a housekeeper, it's not going to pay you. Even though you're trained as an ENT, if you can do anything, it's not going to pay you. And so that's the point of an own occupation policy so that if something happens to your most valuable asset, you can actually get paid for it. Yeah. And are, and are there still insurance companies out there that are writing own occupation policies? Because um, actually this came up on our forum, like, you know, there's a, a professional forum and people were kind of talking about, hey, does this, is this even out there anymore? And, and everyone was kind of throwing out some anecdotal experience. But I know in your, in your podcast, on your website, you have some like very valuable resources in that respect. Yeah, for sure. You, you can still get on occupation policies. Basically, these are sold by what they call the big five or the big six companies. And the way to get it is to go to an independent agent, right? It's a broker. He can sell you a policy from any of these companies. And what you do is you go to him, you tell him your deal. You know, I'm a emergency medicine doc in Massachusetts and, uh, and these are my medical problems and which policy is going to be right for me. And they'll end up lining up three or four or six of these policies saying, here's the advantage of this one over this one and this one over this one for you. And you probably want this one in this state, but you might want to consider this one. And they walk you through the details because a term life policy, it's super straightforward, right? You're either alive or you're dead. If you're dead, it pays out. If you're alive, it doesn't, right? Black and white. I mean, I'm an emergency doc. I see all the gray in between life and death. And it only lasts about 15 minutes, right? Disability is not like that. By comparison, it's 50 shades of gray. So the policies are complicated. You know, the policy might be 50 pages defining what's disabled and what isn't. It's really helpful to have an expert to walk you through this. It does this for hundreds of doctors a year. And so on the website, we have a recommended tab for insurance agents. And all of these 10 agents are people that do this for hundreds of doctors a year. They know the ins and outs of all these policies every time they change, which one's best in any given state, any given specialty, any given gender, any given medical problem. And they can shop you around informally so you don't actually get denied a policy if you have some medical problem. They can say, I don't know if you're going to get this one. Let me call my buddy in the back office at at Guardian Berkshire and see if they'd even write this policy. And so they can do that for you because they have that experience. Whereas if you just go looking for somebody that just hung out a shingle and isn't doing this already for hundreds of doctors a year, you're going to, you know, you might get hosed. You might encourage you to apply and now you've been denied and now you can't get insurance anywhere else. So yeah, you want to use an experienced and independent agent, not someone that just represents one company, someone that can represent all of them. Okay. And uh, we'll link to a lot of this stuff in the show, but there's a place on your website where we can find stuff like that, right? Absolutely. The recommended tab at whitecoatinvestor.com. Yeah, I like the recommended tabs. So is the recommended tab like legit, like you guys, like you've either used them or like you've edited these guys, like the recommended is like, this is like the stamp of approval. Feel good about this. Yeah, pretty much. So, I mean, it depends on the service, right? How much they've been used. You take the financial advisors, we make them fill out an application and we put the application right there with their listing. So you can see what they answered on the application. Uh, For insurance, it's really easy because they're doing so many policies for so many white coat investors. If I get any negative feedback at all, you know, we make them fix it or they come off the list or whatever, you know, those things are really easy. Now, other tabs, it might not be something that gets used as often, you know, for instance, if they're an asset protection attorney, you know, I'm not sending them thousands of people (laughs) a year to, to put plans together for them. 
Sure. <laughs> and so things like uh, real estate investing companies, a little harder to vet. But an insurance agent, financial advisor, well vetted on that list. That's good. I like that. Going back to the financial advisor uh, in, in some of your um, live, I guess, I guess now the fire financial advisor, that's a, that's a course that it's not live. Like you can just get sent that course, right? Yes. That's our, that's the name of our online course. It's kind of provocatively titled. Uh, the financial advisor advertisers we had didn't like that title much, <laughs> but, uh, but they understand. I mean, the first module in the course is how to work with the financial advisor. So it's, yeah, yeah. it's mostly the title, but everybody remembers the name of the title, right? So that's I, right. Guess, I guess it works out, but yeah, it's an, it's an online course. It's an $800 course. It, it's about eight hours. And it mm-hmm. takes you from zero to hero. It takes you from knowing nothing about personal finance to really spoon feeding you all the terms you need to know, making you financially literate and walking you through writing your own financial plan. So when you come out the back end of the course, you have a written financial plan and it's way cheaper than the thousands you'd spend going to a financial advisor to have them write it up for you. I don't know, Jim, 800 bucks. Is there really 800 bucks of value in that? I mean, like, so can you talk a little bit about that? And I'm setting you up here. Like, what is a financial advisor maybe going to charge you versus like taking the $800 course? Well, if you go to a financial advisor, you know, a financial planner, even a really good one that's charging you a fair price for good advice, and you're just hiring them to draft up a financial plan for you, you should expect to spend between $2,000 and $5,000 just for the plan. Just for the plan. And then if they're implementing the plan, you should expect to spend a four-figure amount every year going forward. And that's a fair price, right? Most financial advisors are not charging a fair price. (laughs) And so you might spend tens of thousands of dollars a year, especially if you have a significant amount of assets. I mean, you think about the industry standard. These guys like to charge you 1% of your assets a year. Well, if you have $2 million in assets, that's 20 grand a year. And next year it might be 25 grand. The year after that, it might be 30 grand, right? You might be paying a ton of money for financial advice and investment management. So if you're actually only paying five or $6,000 a year, you're actually coming out ahead. But then you look at the course, right? It's an $800 course, one-time fee, that's it. And in fact, we've even made another version of it. It costs a few hundred dollars more, but it gives you CME credit. And so you can use your CME money to buy it. Um, So we think it's a great value. But is that what I did? Did I take this course to put together my financial plan? No, I went and spent hours on financial forums. I went to the library, I read dozens of books. You know, I went over to Bookman's, like I mentioned earlier, and bought a bunch of financial books and read them. And I drafted up my own financial plan. So you can save the 800 bucks, but you're going to use at least $800 worth of time to do that. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. You just got to pick which is the best way for you to get a financial plan. Is it drafting it up yourself? Is it taking this online course? Is it going and hiring a financial planner? And they're all valid ways to get there. Just pick one, the one that's right for you and get yourself a plan in place. Yeah, I'll just say from personal experience, um, I had a financial advisor and and if it's so to me, it's always surprising, like about how many people, the reasons why they like their financial advisor, it's usually like a cousin or a buddy of theirs or a friend of a friend who's their financial advisor. And they're like, you know what? I know this guy's not going to rip me off. And I'm like, man, that's that's the bar that you just don't want to get badly <laughs> ripped off. But like for my, like in my in my case, like the financial advisor wasn't a good fit for a couple of reasons. And he was a, and it's not because he was a bad meaning guy. It's just there's just a lot of power in doing it yourself or at least knowing the right financial planner for yourself. Well, let, let, let's give listeners the truth here. Right. Yeah. Anybody can call themselves a financial advisor. OK. And so what has happened is the vast majority of people out there calling themselves a financial advisor are really salesmen in disguise, masquerading as a financial advisor. They sell products. 
You know, it might be uh, whole life insurance policies. It might be annuities. It might be loaded mutual funds, these commission mutual funds that they sell it to you and they get a commission. And the problem with that model of paying for advice is you get this biased advice and you end up with the worst products because they got to, the worst products have to pay the highest commissions in order to be sold. <laughs> and so you end up with the worst possible investments after going to this person for advice because that's how they get paid. So when you go to a financial advisor, perhaps the most important thing is that they are a fee-only advisor. They only get paid a fee for their advice. And you would think this is the way all financial advisors work, but it is not how all financial advisors work. And oftentimes, what you discover when you go to see a friend or a cousin is that they are one of these other types of quote-unquote financial advisors. They are a salesman. And now you have to fire your cousin and then see your cousin... <laughs> At weddings, you have to see your cousin at family dinner. You know, this is bad. I would encourage you not to use your cousin, not to use your brother-in-law because it's just too hard to fire them. <laughs> so far better to find a real financial advisor that it's a business relationship, not a personal relationship. I mean, I can't tell you how many docs I have talked to who have gone to somebody they knew and been ripped off. I mean, I got ripped off a, a good friend of mine interned for a large, well-known whole life insurance company. And sold me a whole life insurance policy as a medical student, as a medical student with nobody depending on me, a whole life policy. I mean, it's basically financial malpractice, right? And so that's what happens when you just rely on somebody that you know is they may not know as much as you think they do. Sure. Yeah. Sometimes well-meaning, not always uh, Right. Malice, it's a, right. completely well-meaning. It wasn't yeah, malicious yeah. whatsoever, <laughs> but he just didn't know what he didn't know. Sure. So one of the things uh, I, l I really like uh, from your website is the the resources um, that you guys have available. So can you talk a little bit about like, so you guys got books, you got the blog, you got the podcast, you got the forum. Can you kind of talk about like the different ways you guys are trying to package up like financial literacy and why there's so many different ways to kind of take a look at it? Like, do I, do I need all this stuff or can I just read the blog? Yeah, well, here's the deal, right? What we've discovered over the years is that people do not follow us in every format. It's very segmented. The people that are in the Facebook group may not read the blog at all. And the people who listen to the podcast have probably never been to the YouTube channel. And so, you know, it's fairly similar information no matter how you like to consume it. Some things work better uh, for different purposes than other things. For example, you know, you might want to go to the YouTube channel for a, a video to walk you through filing your backdoor Roth IRA tax form, right? Uh, that's our most popular video there because it's a, it's walkthrough. It's like when you want to fix a little something on your car and you look up the YouTube video, right? It's the same right. principle. But we've got, uh, you know, but we all learn differently. Like my preferred way of learning is not actually reading blogs. I don't like reading blogs. I love writing <laughs> blogs, but I don't actually like reading blogs very much. And I detest watching videos. If it's not something I'm going to, you know, fix on my car or something, I am not watching a video for it. You know what I like? I like books. I like forums. I like interacting with other people and bouncing ideas and asking questions and answering questions. That's how I learn personal finance. But everybody's not the same. Some people are like, no, man, podcast is where it's at. I listen mm -hmm. to podcasts. I got a 40-minute commute each way. Uh, you know, I like to listen to it while I work out. And so we try to put it into every format for every person. We don't expect everybody that ever comes to the White Coat Investor website to come to our live CME conference, right? That's kind of our premium item. It's not cheap. Uh, but you know what? It's a really cool, immersive experience. And, uh, but it's not right for everybody. You know, if you don't want to go to a conference across the country to learn about personal finance and investing, you may just prefer to read the blog or watch the videos or take an online course or whatever. So whatever you prefer, 
we packaged it up, books, videos, courses, conferences, podcast, video cast, blog, even an email newsletter. It can arrive in your email box every, every month and, and we'll teach you personal finance that way. Whatever you prefer is how we're trying to give it to you. That's really cool. That's really cool. And actually, um, so a guy who was on the podcast before you, Leaf. Leaf Darlene. Yeah. So yeah. Leaf was on the podcast. So he's a part of like the White Coat Investor Club. And then um, I forgot who's a passive MD. This is a, uh, an anesthesiologist by the name of Peter, Peter Kim that lives out Peter in Kim. California. So Leaf's big focus at the Physician on Fire is on mm -hmm. personal finance, financial independence, really, yeah. and retiring early. So if you're like, you know what, maybe medicine wasn't everything I expected it to be. I kind of want to punch out at 45. That is the blog for you. You know, he will guide you how to do that. He retired from anesthesia at 43. If you're very interested in building a passive income, particularly with real estate, Peter tends to write toward that. And you can find more information at Passive Income MD there. They're both part of the White Coat Investor network of blogs. Yeah, I thought those were really cool. In fact, I, I got hooked on Leaf early when I thought like, man, that's that's the path. I, I can't keep doing this until I'm 55. But what, what you kind of end up realizing is like the closer you get to financial independence and then all of a sudden it's like having this like F you feeling like it's like, I don't need this. And so it's like a big weight lifted on it when like you're going to work because you want to, not because you got to. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I've loved <clears throat> practicing medicine uh, without needing to practice medicine. It's really wonderful. You know, you can, uh, you can all of a sudden, you know, the administrators have no power over you. It's That's like, right. what are you going to do? Fire me? You know, I don't care. <laughs> okay. I don't care. You know, yeah. truly it's having FU money. So, yeah. So, uh, just a, a couple uh, quick questions personally. Um, so you still like practicing, uh, ER medicine, like fully going at it still like you're, you're 100% in, or are you kind of like part-time now? I mean, like the white coat investor must take up so much time. Yeah, I'm definitely part time. And that's exactly why I, you know, up until about, uh, it must've been 2016, I was working full time on both of them, wow. right? I had two full-time jobs. I was working harder than I was during residency. And at that point I was still working, you know, a full slate of shifts, nights, weekends, holidays, you know, and, and it was just too much. And I'm like, the white coat investor is getting bigger. It needs a little bit more of me. And so I started cutting back shifts. First, I went to uh, well, the first thing I did, and one of the big motivations for me to become financially independent was to drop my night shifts. Mm -hmm. While I love emergency medicine, I don't live it nearly as much at three in the morning. <laughs> you know, not only is it a different clientele at three o'clock in the morning, sure, um, but you get that achy feeling that you're like, my body's telling me I shouldn't actually be awake right now. So yeah. I was really looked forward to dropping that. So I dropped those night shifts first. Then I cut back to three quarter time and half time. And right now I'm at about 0.4 time. Um, which is pretty awesome. It feels like I could do this the rest of my life. And uh, it's just going in and seeing my friends and talking to some people and seeing if I can help them. And, and it's good. You know, maybe that's this good. weekend when all my shifts for the month are in a row, uh, that's not so good. But, you know, <laughs> most of the time I really like it. Yeah. So what's next for like the White Coat Investor um, Empire? Like um, you guys got anything? I mean, like, I feel like you're, you're hitting on all modalities, uh, all different mechanisms to get information in front of people's eyeballs and ears. Um, like what's next? Like, where do you want to take this thing? Well, we always got something neat and new coming out. Um, part of the thing we've been transitioning to over the last year and over this coming year is making the blog less about me and more about you, more about, you know, the community of physicians out there. And, uh, and so we've got more voices on the blog, you know, for more diverse viewpoints, and we're going to have more voices on the podcast as well. And so that's a, a big change we've been like making the few the last few years. Coming up in the short term, we've got a conference coming up, the Physician Wellness right, and Financial thanks. Literacy Conference. And you can find more information on that at whitecoatinvestor.com slash 
uh, WCICon 22. All right. And if you go there, you can actually still sign up to attend this conference virtually. Uh, by the time you hear this, it's going to be too late to come in person. Um, but this is February 9th through 12th, and you can attend virtually. About half the people are coming virtually this year. No surprise with the pandemic, and the other half are coming in person. Uh, but that's something we've got coming right up. Uh, I also should have a book on asset protection out in the next few months. So lots of cool stuff happening. Man, how many books do you have now? Is it five? Are you up to five? This would be uh, the fourth one. Wow. That's, that's completely authored by me. I've, I've done some book chapters and other books, but. Man, busy guy. All right. So we mentioned it a couple of times. Um, if What if uh, someone wants to tweet at you? What if someone wants to get in touch with you? Like, what's the best way? The way I prefer is email. If you just All shoot right, me an email, email. Ed, editor at whitecoatinvestor.com is the easiest way to reach me. Anything White Coat Investor, whatever you want. You want a course? White Coat Investor online course. You want a conference? White Coat Investor conference. You want a blog? White Coat Investor Good. blog. You know, we're, we spend a lot of time and effort trying to be found. So we're not difficult to find. Um, right. You know, the books, same title on each of the books. All right, Jim. Well, we really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Uh, for me, this was uh, a big deal. I don't know if you were <laughs> accidentally, I meant to take you off this email. Um, but I think you were looped in anyway. Um, when I was excited that we, uh, like you agreed to come on the show, I emailed uh, Jamila, who does our scheduling, and Aaron. I said, get ready for me to break the internet with this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully it goes out really well because, you know, there's a lot of people out there still that haven't heard of the White Coat Investor. So I know, if, we, it's if we can reach them through your podcast, that's wonderful. All right. That's awesome. All right. Uh, to the audience, guys, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast but want more, Check out the show notes of this episode. We're going to have links to just about everything that we talked about, uh, including some of the things that were not white coat investor, like uh, Physician on Fire and PassiveMD.com. If you want to find those, www.backtable.com for the show notes. But don't wait for the show notes. Just Google white coat investor. That's going to take you to where you want to go. If you enjoyed the podcast and want to support the show, here are two easy ways. First, one second, hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on. This is going to help things like iTunes or Spotify know that you, our audience, value what we're doing and you're interested in getting our latest content as we're putting it out there. Second, if you're really getting value from these podcasts, please go to iTunes, leave us a short written review. This helps us in a lot of different ways. Plus, we love the feedback. That wraps things up. We'll see you next time on the Backtable Podcast. Jim, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Brian Hartley. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Zubi Syed. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. And newsletter by Lauren Fang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.